1140 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters, one of whom will be joining us later in this episode. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. 1140. Do you always do it that way, or do you ever... I wasn't I paying you, attention. You do the 1140. You're trying to kill as much time as possible in your episode days, but I, I go with the streamlined pronunciation, yeah. I know there's a difference in, a, in the way American speakers and Spanish speakers say phone numbers uh-huh. uh, i think we tend to say all the numbers individually and as i recall i might have this backwards but i think in spanish it was you say the first digit and then and then three pairs so mm-hmm. i have i have no further follow-up comment boy the braves got the hammer down didn't they <laughs> look at that look what happened to them yeah we have a lot to banter about here so this was ostensibly a listener email show and it still will be to some extent we're going to be joined by one of our real high rollers one of our big time patreon supporters one of the perks of supporting us on patreon at a certain level is you get to come on for a listener email show so we're going to do some listener emails with a listener who often emails us mike later in this episode but we have more than we planned to talk about before then because this was a news-packed day. Man, some November 21sts, you really have to struggle to come up with something to say about baseball, but this is Thanksgiving week and things are happening. So a couple things that we aren't even really going to have time to touch on. Aaron Judge had shoulder surgery, which is kind of interesting. Left shoulder surgery, nothing super serious, arthroscopic surgery, and it's just loose bodies. Love the loose bodies. And <laughs> clean up cartilage in the shoulder it probably doesn't tell us anything about his next season it's not any kind of career threatening worrisome injury but it is interesting because there were reports mid-season that he was having some shoulder issues that he would not talk about publicly and would not even really acknowledge to the team but there were some sort of whisperings and rumblings that the shoulder was bothering him and I think a lot of us speculated that that was why he went into that slump in August-ish and obviously he recovered to be amazing after that so it, it wasn't holding him back too much but maybe he was figuring out some way to play even as he was hampered by this injury so I guess that's a good thing in that A, it means that maybe it wasn't so much the league adjusting to Aaron Judge for that period and him adjusting back as it was him adjusting to his own infirmity, which maybe will not continue into next season. So that's good, I guess. I mean, it's never a good sign when a player has shoulder surgery, but in this case, maybe it is encouraging in a way. Anyway, that's notable. We can close the book maybe on wondering what was getting into Aaron Judge at that point in the season. So WRC Plus, 225 next year, over (laughs) or under Aaron Judge? Uh... No, I'll take, I'll take you under. shouldn't have to think about this so much. 225, yeah. that was oh, supposed to be ridiculously high. that's big, yeah. <laughs> yeah, under. that's way yeah. too big. Yeah, it's not often you want to talk about arthroscopic surgery, but I wonder, in the case of Judge, you're right, it, uh, it makes you feel weirdly a little bit maybe better about the second half. I don't recall if, did Bryce Harper ever have anything done on his shoulder after 2016? or uh, uh, I, don't I don't think so, right? At least not that we remember. know about. There was that whole mystery about what was bothering him, and he said it was nothing, and there were various reports. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I wonder if you were a player, let's call him, well, someone like Aaron Judge, but who had a worse second half. If you're a player who has a big first half and a bad second half, and, and you just really want to save some face, do you think you could compel a surgeon to just open you up in the winter 
just to <laughs> just to kind of toy around in there because all you all you really need is to say removed loose bodies or bone mm-hmm. chips or right or tightened something up or yeah frayed something else and and then it, it buys you a little bit of a little bit of leniency until mm-hmm. i think the next spring training when you resume being terrible assuming that you were a, you've become a bad player but mm-hmm. I, I i wonder you you hear about those high school preemptive tommy john cases and i wonder if there are players who are just so concerned with their image that they would uh that they would go under the knife and and find someone sufficiently unethical to follow up and <laughs> actually do it yeah, although you'd think if you found an unethical surgeon, you could just persuade him to say that he did surgery on you without actually performing the surgery. <laughs> Maybe that would be. I guess easier. that might be the easier way out. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> less of a less of the the dying. Yes, risk. right. And the other piece of news that we're barely going to talk about is a, a letter that. Our old pal Joe Morgan sent to all Hall of Fame voters expressing his opinion, and he says the opinion of many Hall of Fame members that steroid users should not be admitted into the Hall of Fame. This is coming on the heels of the Hall of Fame strangely rejecting the BBWAA's request to publicize their ballots. That was weird, but this is not so weird. This is kind of what we would think that Joe Morgan would think and what many Hall of Famers would think. The only note I have for Joe Morgan here is that if you're going to send this letter about how no steroid users should be allowed in the hall and it's cheating and it's character clause and so forth wouldn't you not want to say something like quote but it still occurs to me that anyone who took body altering chemicals in a deliberate effort to cheat the game we love etc etc he keeps saying chemicals and like body altering which clearly applies to greenies and amphetamines which by many accounts many players if not most players if not all players of joe morgan's era were taking and that is the the clear double standard you're opening yourself up to accusations of being hypocritical here when someone from an era when players were cheating in a different way or altering their chemistry in a different way were prevalent i mean at least say like anabolic steroids or something that you can't just come right back and say players were doing the same thing in your era exactly so i would have advised him to change up the language here a little bit just to leave it a little less open to the accurate accusation that this is extremely hypocritical and there's that old story about what was it babe ruth was trying to shoot himself up with like sheep testicles or something yeah, and then he, stories he like got that. sick and had to miss a game well that's just improper application of the drug but i guess if you maybe talk me away from this point because i don't care nearly enough to actually know all the all the rationale behind it but there was no real meaningful drug policy for a very long time mm-hmm. but at least in in baseball but amphetamines have been a controlled substance since what is it 1970 something like that maybe yeah that maybe yeah quite earlier yeah so i don't think that there for a long time there was no explicit baseball rule i don't think against the use of amphetamines but there was you know the whole it's against the law <laughs> rule, which I guess kind of covers it. But if you want to really kind of drill down, if you're a real, I don't know, steroid truther, and you don't want any PED users in the in the Hall of Fame, but you're willing to wave by some Greenies users, then maybe you could say that the players who were taking amphetamines weren't breaking the baseball rules, but then mm. eventually some of the steroid users were... <laughs> Look, I don't like it, but go yeah. ahead and, and tell me why that's not true. I mean... There is something to that, I guess, if you want to be a stickler about it, and you can do the same thing with steroids, of course. I mean, they were banned and as, you know, made a, a protected substance 
I think around the same time that there was actually a baseball rule put in place that they were banned, which no one really paid attention to or was necessarily even aware of. There was like a memo sent from the commissioner to teams that just kind of ended up in people's junk piles. But, you know, I think that you could say that the law of the land governs a sport that takes place in the land. So for me, at least the idea of needing a specific baseball rule or not, eh, it's not particularly persuasive. Anyway, the idea that players would take a body-altering chemical is nothing new in baseball and was certainly not unheard of in Joe Morgan's day either. So anyway, that's the obvious rebuttal, and I feel like the language here could have been constructed in such a way that it wouldn't have been as easy to apply it. Yeah. Okay. So look, the letter could have been phrased better, and uh, and I agree with you. And I don't know if there's an original way to have this same conversation mm-hmm. every year, because it is a conversation that we have every year. I think we knew that was going to be yep. the case, and certainly it's not going to go away anytime soon. I will uh, give Joe Morgan credit, I guess, for just... I know that... What, what was the announcement? Like yesterday, the ballots were mailed out or received or mm-hmm. something. So it was like, oh, look, it's Hall of Fame voting season. But then you wake up Tuesday and it's like, bam! All right. <laughs> We're doing it. It's Hall of Fame voting season, and it sucks. It's the worst yeah. time of year, just kind of in general. I understand that uh, there are people who have differences of opinion, and that's great. Some of them are my peers, although not many of them. But some people care very deeply and passionately about the Hall of Fame. I've never been able to bring myself to do it, and with the way that it gets covered, I'm not sure that I'll be able to bring myself to do it if in eight years I'm still writing about baseball, and if I'm still in good graces with the BBWIA, and if I get get a Hall of Fame vote, I have no freaking idea what I'm going to do with it or how much I'm going to care about it or if I'll even submit a ballot at all. But I just, I've been writing about baseball for a decade and a half and I haven't, I haven't cared about the Hall <laughs> of Fame that much yet. So I don't know if it's going to get to the point. I think I remember receiving a, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was a text or a direct message or an email from Grant Brisby some years ago. And he was just inquiring, have you ever written about the Hall of Fame <laughs> ever? And I was thinking about it and I couldn't come up with an instance. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to try, I'm going to try real hard to Keep that intact. <laughs> yeah, that's how you should become eligible for a vote, is if you can go 10 years without ever actually writing about the whole thing, <laughs> then you get one. <laughs> That'd be funny. You finally get one and you submit one of those protest votes, blank ballots, Murray Chess style. <laughs> Jeff Sullivan making a statement. Yeah, another passage from the Morgan letter. Steroid users knew they were taking a drug that physically improved how they played. Could also apply to amphetamines. Taking steroids is a decision. It's the deliberate act of using chemistry to change how hard you hit and throw, etc., etc. Anyway, I think it's probably silly to believe that... Whatever PED you want to name, I'm sure there is someone who has taken it or tried to take it already in the hall, whether he was knowingly elected or not. And of course, it's maybe fair to draw some distinctions between people who did things before there was testing and harsh punishments and and after. And if you want to make that distinction, that's okay. But anyway, I think the point is that places full of cheaters and PED users and Bud Selig for that matter. So I think the time to hold the line on the character clause is probably behind us at this point. Anyway, did we start podcasting together at the start of 2017 when I was back from from my trip? Did we begin by talking about the Hall of Fame? Because I have some vague Maybe. deja that vu about the time here. that we would be talking about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's too bad. What a great anniversary! <laughs> yeah, it's all come basically. full circle. I don't. I don't. <laughs> 
I'm not sure if there's a, a perspective I agree with more than just the perspective that the Hall of Fame is a museum of baseball history containing a whole bunch of players who were significant because of what they did on the field or what they did related to what happens on the field or with roster management, whatever. It's just a museum. And in museums, you can point out the good things and the bad mm-hmm. things. And I don't know what the point is of, of leaving out someone who was extremely prominent. I don't know. I, I'm not saying Mark McGuire should be in the Hall of Fame, but if he were in the Hall of Fame, I don't know what the point would be of he was a bad example to bring up so let's bring up Barry Bonds instead because Barry Bonds clearly look I don't need to support Barry Bonds's numbers they're great so I don't know what benefit there would be in his being excluded because then you're just completely just okay let's move on to the next thing I don't want to do this <laughs> yeah, anymore we didn't even mean to really talk about this this is all my fault the things we actually wanted to talk about today there was finally Shohei Otani news. There will be much more Shohei Otani news in the next few weeks. But we know now that there is an agreement in place between MLB and NPB and the Players Association. Players Association is not going to stand in the way of his coming and playing in MLB in 2018. So that is basically certain to happen at this point. And we got the details. I mean, the news itself, not that surprising. I think we were all virtually certain that this would happen. But we did get the details, which is that the old posting agreement is grandfathered in in Otani's case. So the fighters will get $20 million for the posting fee. And in future years, there will be no more posting fee. There will just be a sliding scale where... The Japanese teams will get a percentage, a a cut of the player's contract, and they get various percentages depending on what the total amount of the contract is. So that's settled to everyone's satisfaction or at least acquiescence. And there are other provisions in here like a shortened posting period. The Players Association didn't want the free agency, domestic free agent market to be sidetracked or delayed by posting questions. And so now the free agents, potential free agents from Japan will have to be posted and and signed between November 1st. And December 5th, I guess that is the posting period. And then NPB teams can't pull back the player when there's a deal because of the sliding scale that will give them a set amount depending on the contract total. So basically, that's how this was resolved. And really, the interesting thing is that I think this is all going to happen very soon. And this agreement has to be ratified by the owners next week, next Friday, December 1st. And if that happens, as is expected to be the case, then he'll be eligible to be posted more or less immediately. So that's going to happen probably either next Friday or Saturday, and then teams will have about three weeks to sign him. So someone, it seems, is going to have Shohei Otani before Christmas. So all this is going to play out in accelerated fashion. I don't know whether he'll have people coming to him and making their case or whether he'll be touring various places, but it's all going to be hot and heavy over the course of about three weeks. And This is going to be playing out during the winter meetings, so that's going to put a crimp in some teams' plans. Maybe it'll be a slow winter meetings because of that, but we're going to see a lot of suitors lining up, and it's all going to start happening very soon. He's going to be such an attractive and desirable piece that I don't, I don't know what's the what's the baseball front office equivalent of sending a a shirtless mirror selfie (laughs) to Shohei Otani to just kind of grab his attention. It it should, you know, he should go the the bumble way, and he should be the one who has to initiate contact Mm -hmm. with teams as opposed to the other way around but i guess if he wanted to do this in a very poetic way he would sign with the team on christmas for all of our sakes i hope that he doesn't sign with the team on christmas i hope that he gets it over with well in advance of that but it is good it's exciting to finally have i don't know another step toward resolution here even though it's a step that 
we both knew and I think we all knew was coming. There was much manufactured drama over whether or not an agreement would be reached. And of course, an agreement was going mm-hmm. to be reached. It was always going to be reached. But it's uh, it's good to have this moving quickly because we've had multiple cases of prominent Japanese players not signing until January, which is just kind of a bother. Yeah. It's great for the January writing season because there's nothing else to talk about, but you just kind of want these things to advance. Smart of the players, you need to get the timeline moved up. I can't really think of much of a downside from the Japanese player or team perspective mm-hmm. there. So I like it. It's kind of weird to know that we're roughly a month or so away from Otani actually belonging to a team, but it also feels like it's like three years overdue to just finally get it over with so we can know what's going to happen. But just if you think about it, within the next month, some team, and we have no idea what team it could be, genuinely no idea, mm-hmm. some team in baseball is going to have arguably the single most valuable asset in the world fall into their lap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, some teams it seems like have been positioning themselves to be able to offer Otani a little more money, the Yankees, the Mariners trading for international bonus pool money, but we don't actually know whether that's so they'll have a better chance of signing Otani or whether they'll have a better chance of signing a bunch of Braves prospects who are no Whoa, longer Braves look prospects. At that segue. Yeah, so in other news that we knew was coming, but now has actually come, and we know the details of the Braves got the smackdown. They have been punished for their international signing and, I guess, some domestic signing infractions. And I think we all had the sense that the penalties were going to be pretty severe, but if anything... They're probably more severe than I was expecting. This is not just for show. So if I can try to summarize everything that MLB has levied against the Braves here. So on an individual level, general manager John Coppolella banned for life. Banned for baseball for life. Not a lot of people who've been banned for baseball from life. He is now one of them. And special assistant Gordon Blakely was suspended for a year as well. There may be some more punishments for various international operations employees coming, but that's not the important stuff from a Braves fan perspective. Those people were already gone, as is John Hart, who I guess gets off scot-free here. Nice nice job, John Hart. But (laughs) the big penalty here, the Braves are losing 12 players signed over the last couple international free agent periods, and I'm not going to claim to be an expert on any you know, 17-year-old foreign signees, but you can read various scouting reports. And the big name, the name that people know is Kevin Maitan, who was a big signee but has seen his stock fall for various reasons, just hasn't looked that great physically or on the field. But they do have some really promising prospects here. Obviously, everyone extremely raw and far from the majors, but having essentially an entire international signing class wiped away, that's pretty significant, uh, completely deserved, of course, but pretty significant nonetheless. And then the Braves are barred from signing a, a couple specific international prospects who will be eligible in the next couple signing periods, but they will also be punished in in other ways. So they're going to lose their 2018 third-round pick in the domestic amateur draft, and that's for some extra contractual compensation shenanigans that went on with a 2017 second-round pick, Drew Waters, who they do get to keep. But another significant cost here, they are prohibited from signing international players for more than $10,000 during the 2019 to 2020 signing period. So basically they can't sign 
any attractive prospect during that period. And their bonus pool is cut in half for the following signing period, 2020 to 2021. So this is a lot. This is a a lot of news, a lot of punishments. I don't think anyone could really argue with the punishments based on the nature of what we know the Braves did, which do you want to try to describe what the Braves did? I mean, this is not novel. This is not dramatically different from, say, what the Red Sox were caught doing or what other teams have probably done. But I guess the extent of the infractions, the kind of brazenness of the infractions and the number of them, essentially the Braves wouldn't have been able to sign any of the prospects that they signed in the most recent international signing period if not for the money that they were essentially hiding. So can you explain, do you understand the the bonus packaging scheme that they were running here? A little bit. And I'm trying to find a, the most, just with some quick Googling, October 1st, 2015 is the last time I can find John Coppolella referred to as a rising star within the industry. <laughs> that was two years ago. And there's uh, several other examples I can find from before that. But so uh, I think one thing to understand is that based on, I guess, secondhand knowledge of how this works within the industry, pretty much every team does something like what the Braves have been doing or like what the Red Sox were caught doing. I don't want to cast stones at every organization in baseball, but let's at least say that what the actions similar to what the Braves were doing and similar to what the Red Sox were doing are not uncommon. Mm -hmm. It is very frequent that you will see these signing bonus packages. I believe it took a while for details to actually come out of of what the Braves were doing. And one of the infractions that they committed, which is unrelated to the international market, is they were trying to throw some sort of essentially under the table benefits to a draft pick from last year or the year before to compel him to sign. So that was sort of a more of a minor infraction on their part and that cost them a third round pick. But it's the signing bonus packaging that got them in the most most trouble to say nothing of entering into premature agreements with uh what at least one 14 year old which is also not too uncommon it's a wild west kind of frontier industry down there and everybody sucks Mm -hmm. but what the braves have been caught doing at least in one instance there was a player that they wanted but of course with the international bonus pools there are i think what there are now hard caps but there used to be soft caps where Mm -hmm. you didn't want to exceed the cap by too much because you would incur some pretty severe penalties so what the braves forgot who the player was it's one of the players they no longer possess but they wanted to sign him, and so they gave him a, a pretty good signing bonus, but they were able to effectively get more money to him by giving an unusually large signing bonus to an older player who is not covered by the, mm-hmm. what, under, I think at that point, under 23 mm-hmm age limit so essentially there was some other player that they gave money to who was i don't know 24 25 26 someone who who wasn't affected by the bonus pool limits and so presumably those players shared a trainer and then the trainer could facilitate delivering some of the money that went to the older player to the younger player so they could that way get the higher bonus to the younger desirable player in such a way that it skirted the bonus pool caps. You were not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. The Braves were caught. Many teams have done this before. Kyle McDaniel went to work for, ironically, the Braves. He wrote a post, a few posts at Fangraphs that talked about how this is something that would go on uh, down there in the international market. It's uh, when, when the Red Sox were caught, people said, yeah, lots of teams are doing this. When the Braves are caught, people said, yep, lots of teams are doing this. But the Braves apparently doing it more, more substantially. They uh, flouted the rules a little too much. I don't remember. Do you recall who, if it's been said, 
how baseball found out about this in the first place. I would assume you don't just stumble upon this. Right. I've heard that it was maybe people from inside the organization who were embittered or or let go and kind of informed on their former colleagues but i i don't know the exact details so i think you know they were they were tipped off to this maybe by people within the organization or former members or i don't know maybe from people in in rival organizations although i think mm-hmm. you know you'd be worried about tipping off mlb about something one team is doing if you know that your team is doing that too so <laughs> i think that has something to do with it but Basically, I think it's kind of an open secret that this goes on, but if you get caught doing it, if you do it in such a fashion that it's just obvious to everyone and you leave evidence and you ask to be caught, essentially, then you're going to be caught and you're going to be punished. And this was, you know, it's it's kind of, it's hard to commend MLB here because it's kind of like... Good job, MLB, for enforcing these rules that are meant to keep money in very rich owners' pockets instead of impoverished players' pockets. <laughs> it's not something that you can feel great about, really. But hey, these are the rules. These are the standards that the league put in place, and they are enforcing them here. This is no fool, and these are really the rules, people. So <laughs> I think, you know, this is harsh enough that if a team is doing this if team other than the Braves is doing this then I think this is a strict enough penalty that that team might stop doing it just because they don't want this to happen to them this is the era now that we've entered of people slash organizations getting blown up for so-called open secrets Mm. so these uh, open secrets are becoming increasingly disciplined for more reasons than one you don't want to I don't know you when on the face of it this is a very severe penalty this uh chips away at the braves organizational depth Mm -hmm. these are some very talented albeit i think in every single case pretty distant from the major leagues players but this is how a lot of teams prefer to build up their systems and Mm -hmm. from this crop of of talented young players you could get in a few years half of an organizational top 10 it kind of depends on how these players develop so you don't want to overstate it's not like the mlb stripped the braves of their owning of the Ronald Acuna, which would be like a major organizational blow. This is a severe penalty for those who pay attention to the international market, which that's kind of a a niche interest. And most of those players don't really pan out in any meaningful way. So this isn't a huge franchise crippling penalty, but for a baseball organization and every single organization cherishes the players who are worth just a few million dollars to the 17 year old lottery tickets this is massive and i i don't i still don't think it's going to serve as a deterrent teams are going to keep doing what they can ultimately whenever you have a system that caps the amount of money that teams can throw to the players they want to give the money to Mm -hmm. teams are going to find some way to get around the rules i don't know if this means they're going to be less blatant about it i don't know if the braves are even that blatant about it but you can say that maybe from this point forward major league teams will be careful about not having general managers that are super easy for people to dislike (laughs) yeah that might be true yeah and this works out well for the players who are now not unrestricted free agents, but international free agents essentially again. So they get to keep the bonus money that the Braves gave them. So that's, I don't know, $20 million, more than $20 million probably that the Braves spent that they now get nothing for. Players get to keep that money because they weren't really the ones to blame here. And essentially other teams can sign them now using their international bonus pools, either from this year or from next year. So 
Unfortunately, I would say the, they're not true free agents. That would have been fun if if these were just <laughs> unrestricted free agents. And then we actually would have gotten a glimpse at how teams value this type of talent. You know, if you didn't have these rules in place to restrict spending, like I have no idea what one of these, you know, one of the, the best prospects in this group available would go for if they could sign with any team for as much money as they wanted. But it would be so much that it would, I think, expose kind of the artificiality of the way that the international market works now and just how much the rules depress the potential earnings of these players because, you know, it would be some enormous multiple of what they will actually make. But at least they get to keep what they had and they get an additional bonus on top of that from some lucky team that has enough in its spending pool that it can now dip into that for some of these prospects. So works out for them, does not work out for the Braves. But I agree, it's not that the Braves are crippled or that their rebuild is over now and that they can't compete, but it's a it's a setback, certainly. Mm-hmm. Last uh, last offseason, let's see, I can just read down this list. Trevor Plouffe signed for a year and $5.25 million. Rajay Davis got $6 million for a year. Jerry Blevins, Boone Logan both got $6.5 million for a year. Club options on those. Ben Revere signed for a year and $4 million. Ben Revere signed for more money than Shohei Otani will be able to sign for. Mm-hmm. He signed for, I forgot what Kevin Maiton's bonus was the first time around, but he'll get less this time around because he's... Uh, He's just worse. He projects worse, but he's still going to get seven figures for his second bonus. So Ben Revere, last year as a free agent, signed for probably about, I don't know, a double what Kevin Maiton is going to sign for as a restricted international free agent now. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it would be it would be all kinds of fun to have these players be true free agents and you one can make a very convincing argument that they ought to be true free agents, but yep, nope. Gotta keep paying Ben Revere and Chris Carter and Drew Butera and I'm just this is a really uninspiring part of the free agent list, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. Derek Holland he was in baseball last year. I didn't remember that. <laughs> yeah. Joaquin Benoit pitched. Anyway, mm-hmm. I don't need to keep going over veterans. We'll have plenty of time to talk about them when they sign this year. Right. Yeah. Joel Sherman also reported that the Braves offered impermissible benefits, which were never provided to players who were drafted. So essentially they said, if you sign with us for less money, a lower bonus will give you something. I don't know what, but something they weren't supposed to give to the player. And then they never gave it to him anyway. <laughs> so this <laughs> You know, it's extremely sleazy, just all aspects of this, really. And I don't think you can really criticize, even if you're a hardcore Braves fan, I don't think you can really have any objection to what happened here because these contracts that were voided were essentially contracts that they never would have been able to sign because they would have exceeded their bonus cap and been unable to to get these guys. So essentially, they're just losing players they never would have had if they hadn't tried to skirt the rules and then individual punishments for certain executives and, you know, an additional bonus pool restriction because say you can't do that so this is going to be something that will continue to hamstring the braves to a a certain extent for years to come so you know well you uh you can as a braves fan you could rationalize being upset here in the same way where we were talking about how seemingly most teams or every team does something like this sure. and you could say well why why should we be singled out or i guess with the red sox also getting singled out doubled mm-hmm. out i don't know <laughs> plucked out why should we why should we bear the brunt of what the entire industry is doing now that's kind of like saying why should i don't know johnny peralta be suspended for peds when lots of players are taking peds and you know you get caught you get caught that's the way that it 
always works. We all speed, etc. other metaphors. So there is some avenue to be a real homer here and say that uh, the Braves don't deserve to be penalized because they're just doing what everyone does and we're just going with the flow of traffic, you know? So there's there's an avenue there to really show your Brave support, but at the end of the day, yeah, you aren't supposed to do this. Nope. All right, so we got through all the news, so let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with Mike to answer some emails. I leave them in the mausoleum so you can see them. I got a dead MC in museum. When I create them, I cremate them and complicate them. You can't save them. There's no ultimatum. Mike's lay around full of ashes with the victim's name and slashes. I've got a long list, and I'm going to get every one of you. Beware of the Punisher. All right, so we're back. And we're joined now by one of our most active commenters in the Facebook group and emailers, and I think most importantly, perhaps from our perspective, Patreon supporters, Mike Juntanen. Hello, Mike. How are you? Hi. I'm doing good. Yeah. Nice to have you on. We appreciate your very informed emails and often informative emails. I have written articles that were inspired by your emails, so it's a pleasure to be joined by you now, and we are grateful for your support. So... We're going to get to emails in a minute, but you want to tell the people anything about yourself, where you are, what you do, any of that? Sure. I live in Nebraska. I'm originally from Michigan. Mm-hmm. I'm a Dodger fan, and yes. uh, I work for FedEx. Uh, oh. I'm a manager, and I have I had a lot of free time uh, this year. I tend to go really hard on my uh, hobbies, and a friend of uh-huh. mine, her family are all Cubs fans, and she started, she was following NLCS last year, and she's like, I find myself rooting for the Dodgers because I know it mean a lot to you. We should follow next season really closely. And I'm like, okay, I work nine to five now. I don't have to work at night. I'm going to get MLB TV, and I'm just going to follow a season. I've always wanted to do that. Oh, wow. Can't do that so well. When you work at night and that worked out really well <laughs> so you so. didn't have a team so you you basically just jumped onto the the dodgers bandwagon no knowing... i've been a dodger fan since i was a kid oh i see but okay. i haven't always been able to follow a whole season when you're working until mm-hmm. like 11 o'clock at night with right. your team plays on the west coast uh-huh. you can't really follow everything and i kind of overdo it when i follow things so <laughs> it, it kind of worked out uh, this year it was a good year yeah. this is probably the closest i've followed a season since 2006 yeah perfect in, timing like every yeah in every i mean i watched basically every at least some of every game there were mm-hmm. definitely games i turned off in disgust especially in, in late <laughs> august yeah but there weren't that many because the first game that i turned off in disgust like god that this game is just terrible was the game against the phillies that I was fortunate enough to turn back on because Cody Bellinger hit his first career home run. And I'm like, I'm going to turn that back on and see if they show a replay. Uh-huh. And then they hit three home runs to tie the game and won the game. And I'm like, <laughs> apparently I can just never turn this team off anymore. So I I watched a lot of ends of games and I'm like, I really want to do something else, but you never know. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, that happened a lot more than I think it usually does. (laughs) Yeah. I would say from our perspective, you didn't overdo it because the emails and comments that you would submit about the Dodgers were greatly helpful in informing content that both Ben and myself put together. Certainly, just I never have watched somebody's swing mechanics change as much as I watched Cody Bellinger's (laughs) swing mechanics change seemingly from pitch to pitch in the World Series when it started to get a lot of uh, attention. And you were the first person to let me and I I think also Ben know mm-hmm. that Cody Bellinger was working on this weird series of swings that he would do. He would start it, I think, in two strike counts. And I don't know, I don't need to keep explaining your level of fandom to everybody else. But for someone who was <laughs> took the first opportunity to really dive into a Dodger season in a long time, you really dove in there and it was greatly helpful to us. Yes. 
I, the the first time when I when I wrote I wrote something to you guys about Clayton Kershaw's slider, yes. and it was just like one day when I was watching the game, I'm like, wait, he figured it out, and I pull up <laughs> my tablet and I open Baseball Savant, and I'm like, holy crap, there it is, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that was a neat a neat thing, and you guys wrote something back, and I'm like, oh, that was cool. This was this is what that Patreon thing gets you is that you're like, hey, you know. Like, hey, that was cool. And then the next day I go and I go to the ringer and I'm like, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We're both frauds, basically. We're just crowdsourcing all of our content. We're relying on tips from readers who are actually watching the games to tell us what is happening. And then we turn that into articles. So it's a great scheme we have going here. So what was your level of sadness after the World Series, were you feeling like, well, I, you know, I had everything go well, and this is just gravy, or were you really down in the dumps? And if so, how quickly did you recover? I don't know that I was really down. I mean, it sucks to lose Game Seven of the World Series. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that it, like, it played out so long and they ended up being behind in the series more than they were ahead. Like, I spend a lot of time getting myself ready for like they might lose at two to one, and you know, at three, at three two, like they're probably going to lose the series. I'd rather be prepared for that than just be wiped out, especially like, I mean, you can't be sad. They did better than, <laughs> right. you know, anybody can, nobody can expect to get there. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's like, man, that, you know, I became a fan. I was a seven-year-old kid and I had played t-ball, but I wasn't a baseball fan. And I just happened to be at a, like a children's rec center on a Air Force base because my dad was in the Air Force and they had game one of the 1988 World Series on and I walked by and I started watching and we know what happens at the end of that game and I'm like wow this baseball thing is really cool we followed the whole World Series and there it was like baseball and the Dodgers have always been completely inseparable to me to where when they're terrible I just can't follow because it's depressing mm-hmm. like the night in the Rupert Murdoch ownership like I just I did in, when I was a teenager I just stopped following baseball for a few years because I just couldn't do it yeah but it feels like they blew the best, maybe the best chance they're going to have in who knows how long, because you just don't get back there no matter how good you are. You mm-hmm. can't count on it happening again. But like it was, a, it was a great season, so you, like you can't really feel like it was a disappointment mm-hmm. either. Like on the other hand, like I think that that Cody, like that three home runs in a row game was probably like the single most ridiculously excited moment I actually had all year because the playoffs were so predictable. Yeah. Like, and even in those crazy World Series games, it was always coming back to tie. Like, they never took a lead again in one of those games, which would have been, oh my God, yes, yes, yes. It was like, oh God, okay, it's not over yet. Okay, like, okay, we're back (laughs) in it. We're back in it. Like, they never had that hit because they were coming from behind over and over and over again after having blown those leads. So there was never that cathartic moment of, oh my God, we've got this. We can, we can do it now. It was the off, it was a train wreck. Like, oh God, we just keep blowing it over and over and over again. (laughs) This isn't supposed to happen what's going on uh and i mean the nlcs and the arizona series were they were fun to watch but they weren't exactly dramatic so yeah well you're rooting for a team that will have a very good chance to be back so that yeah probably i can't i can't, I can't the, feel bad the post world series depression yeah so yeah we i have, got over uh, it pretty fast i think i missed like three episodes of the podcast because like <laughs> i do like when they were in the losing streak i missed some episodes like i just would be like you know what they're gonna talk about it and i know what they're gonna say and it's just gonna make me feel crappy again so 
I'm gonna skip this one. <laughs> you you skipped, but all right, this segment is over. You can't skip episodes. <laughs> no, <laughs> I thought you were a true fan, Mike. <laughs> all right, well, we have broken the ice. We've gotten to know each other, so now let's answer some emails. So I will read them out and. Feel free to chime in whenever you are moved to. So question from Evan. Evan says, Miguel Cabrera's contract has $30 million options in 2024 and 2025 that vest if he finishes in the top 10 of MVP voting the previous year. Let's say it's 2023 and you're the GM of an AL Central team. Also assume that Cabrera is still on the Tigers and sub-replacement level. Baseball writers are poor and corruptible. I'm sure that will continue to be the case. And three, you care about results but don't care about ethics how much would you pay say four or five writers to vote for cabrera for mvp forcing the tigers to be on the hook for that 30 million dollars that would vest if cabrera gets in the top 10 so jeff i know you have already expressed some thoughts via email would you like to re-express those thoughts all right well here's okay Here's the thing. It's not going to be that cheap. I know that writers are poor and corruptible as a population. I I am one. I know exactly how poor and corruptible I am. But this is... How much did Jordan Montgomery give you for that second place (laughs) AL Rookie of the Year vote? Just tell us now. His entire league minimum salary, and it is fantastic. So I think that this is... These are careers. I don't know what would happen because we're, we're talking about an awful... It's like if somebody voted Albert Pujols on the ballot this year, except even worse because Pujols at least was kind of like clutch and he drove in 101 runs. But yeah. if Albert Pujols or someone that bad showed up on an MVP ballot or, you know, a few, if it were a few, I think that this conspiracy would reveal itself very fast Yes, because it wouldn't make any sense. Right. If you had one throwaway vote, that would be easier to, to understand. And maybe you'd only need to buy off one... One writer to give one first place vote that would probably give Cabrera sufficient points. I don't know, but it would be expensive because you would have writers losing credibility like immediately among their peers. Ending basically. I mean, I think you would not get a job as a writer anymore. I I guess it would not be illegal. Like you couldn't be prosecuted for this, probably, right? I mean, you'd just get kicked out of the BBWA. Everyone would lose respect for you, and you'd probably get fired or let go and that'd be the end of your career so you'd have to make sure it was enough money to support yourself for the rest of your life mm-hmm. basically and to make up for the sting of everyone losing all respect for you <laughs> so right yeah you know so about ten thousand dollars and so you have <laughs> you have miguel cabrera then if you are basically doing this to hurt the tigers and let's assume that by 2024 the tigers aren't a catastrophe anymore which they very well could be but let's just assume they're a half decent team okay they're a division rival of yours and so it works to your benefit to make the tigers worse which them having to eat this money would make them worse by reducing their flexibility but it wouldn't make your team that much better and it certainly wouldn't make your team that much better relative to the three other teams or however many teams are in the american league central at that Mm -hmm. point if you figure let's call it three other teams it's such an incremental gain for your own team yeah even if you think you're costing the tigers say 30 million dollars of value then if you figure that lifts up the rest of the american league i'm just i don't know if these numbers make any sense but if you're lifting up the rest of the american league by said 30 million dollars of value 
then that's roughly $2 million of value to each team just by mm. really kicking the Tigers when they're down. And that's if the Tigers are in any way relevant. So maybe that means you cap yourself at 30 divided by 14 or however many teams are in the American League at that point minus the Tigers. But yeah, it's a, it's a fun hypothetical, especially because it's fun to think about what would happen to that writer. But it's... Uh, yeah, it it would be it would be expensive and there would be a very limited gain. Yes. I feel like the real person who would want to do this isn't the GM of another AL Central team. It's Miguel Cabrera. Like that's the person who wants to spend the money to get this vote because he has nothing to lose where yeah. said GM has a lot to lose. Right. Yeah. No, I I don't see it happening. <laughs> I don't think the the cost benefit works out here. I'm curious. I mean, if you're a writer at the end of your career, let's say, hey, it's an uncertain industry, I wonder <laughs> what it would take to completely compromise your principles and reputation to vote. I'm I'm trying to think of my own number. I don't know if I have a number, but it would be higher than a team should be willing to pay. I would sell a vote for $50,000. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, if you're already considering a career change, why not really, right? Get something on the way out. All right. Question from Colin. Long ago, I believe Sam posited that gold gloves are not worthless because there is something to the notion that where there is consensus as to the eye test, perception may have some merit. One of my favorite players, Omar Vizquel, is widely cited as a defensive leader for the 90s, although the stats don't necessarily agree. He's also the victim of many well-written and objectively statistically correct articles saying he's not worthy of the Hall based on war and offensive environment stats. Thoughts on Omar's Hall of Fame candidate? to see yes jeff another hall of fame question your favorite specifically through the lens of popular perception of defensive talent and wizardry i promise not to flame your takes as the arguments against Viscal are sound and i no longer recognize the legitimacy of the hall without barry bonds in it i'm just curious as to your thoughts and particularly jeff's as to the trade particularly to the jeff's <laughs> <laughs> oh i see particularly jeff's as the trade didn't work so well for the Mariners. That's why he wants to know about Jeff's opinion here. I was almost insulted. So either of you, <laughs> any thoughts on the Omar Vizquel candidacy? I'm going to let Mike go first on this one. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> All right. Well, Vizquel has this great defensive reputation. He was obviously a great defender, but I think there's so much of the eye test that anybody who's not truly a professional baseball scout or player is going to be misled by the whole not in the right position and make a great play anyway and make, you know, a play that should be easy look good, like the Derek Jeter problem. Uh -huh. I'm, I don't know that Omar Vizquel is, is that problem to that degree, or anything like that but i think that that it, it throws such a wrench in there like maybe he's merely good and he looked great because he did it with flair and crisp and you know all the plays are executed so well i have no idea because i'm not a scout and i can't answer that question but i think that that's the thing that makes the whole eye test argument difficult for me even though i know that defensive metrics aren't that great either mm -hmm. because it's just so easy to get a reputation for the highlight plays and not actually for being great at defense. Right. Mm -hmm. Jeff, you have any thoughts? I'll take it from here. We, we were, for everyone's benefit, we were given explicit instruction from Mike some time ago that he, uh, he requested, please just ask me about the Dodgers. I really, really know a lot about the Dodgers. And he just held his own in an Omar Vizquel Hall of Fame question. Yep. Not easy to do. I totally avoided making a Dodgers reference there too because <laughs> I end up doing that way too frequently because it's the examples that are easy for me. <laughs> like the Dodgers won the 
defensive team of the year award and had no gold glovers because it was just great defense or good defense everywhere, but right. it wasn't flashy. So mm-hmm. nobody won. I made it anyway. Uh, I think with with Vizquel, he was one of the top defensive players of his era. I don't think that there's a great way to disagree with that. And the fact that he played 24 years in the major leagues and played and spent a lot of time at shortstop even up until the end really speaks to how good he was and I think that I hadn't thought of things in this perspective before until I responded to the email and I think that Omar Vizquel clearly what holds him back as a Hall of Famer is that he didn't really hit much Mm -hmm. at all he had a I think maybe one or two seasons in there of being an above average hitter but those were weird like his 14 home run season in 2002 no idea what happened there but he was just not a great hitter not a not a new story about Omar Vizquel great defensive player and I, if you think of him as like a as a defensive specialist, I think that he was, I don't know, roughly as good at defense as Edgar Martinez was at offense. I think Edgar Martinez should be a Hall of Famer. And so that made me think about, well, why do I think that one specialist deserves to be in? And I'm not quite sold on Vizquel making it in myself. And uh, what I've come down to and what I think is probably inarguable is that while Vizquel was a similarly talented specialist, his specialty is simply less significant on the field than Edgar's specialty is or was hitting. I don't don't know if you're familiar with the usual breakdowns, but I think the current guesstimate is that baseball is like 40% offense, 40% pitching, and 20% defense, something like that. I don't know if that's entirely true, but I think that offense is something like twice as important as defensive ability. This is even though Vizquel played in sort of the pre-shift days, so shortstops Mm -hmm. needed to have a lot of range to be good, and he he was really outstanding. I wouldn't have a great lamentation if Vizquel made the Hall of Fame, but mostly that goes back to my previous point about how I don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah, I I just don't see it. I don't think it's even a particularly strong candidacy. I, I mean, if you're a Hall of Famer, you have to be good at everything, really. And not being good at hitting is just too big a, a part <laughs> of baseball to make the Hall of Fame for me. Even if you're a great fielder, even if you play for a long time and, you know, you compare, I guess the natural comp maybe is Ozzie Smith, but Ozzie Smith was just a way better player than Omar Vizquel. He he also played forever, maybe not quite as long, but he was a significantly better hitter, still a below average hitter for his career, but a better hitter and probably an above-average hitter in maybe the second half of his career. He he improved as a hitter, and he was just an otherworldly fielder. He was really in a class of his own, and I don't know that Vizquel is in a class of his own. He may have looked like it, but certainly the stats see Ozzy as as great as his reputation was, and with Vizquel, that's just not quite the case, at least after the first half or so of his career. And, you know, even Fangraphs, which loves his defense, I mean, his defensive stats on Fangraphs are fantastic. But even so, he's really nowhere even close to the region where we start saying that someone is a Hall of Famer. Certainly, he falls far, far short of the shortstop standards by Jaws, and that's true both of the peak and of the career. And I don't want to say that if a guy is below the Jaws average, he definitely doesn't get in, but Vizquel is just nowhere close to that. So for me, I I just don't see it. He's a great player, and by all accounts, a good guy, and I hope he is a coach and a manager, and he's around the game forever, but... I just don't see him as a Hall of Famer. And likewise, I would not be upset because I don't get upset about Hall of Fame cases. But I think, you know, if you're going to get upset about Jack Morris potentially making it, I think you should probably preemptively get even more upset about the possibility of Omar Vizquel making it because I I just don't see it. And I mean, you'd have to bump up his defensive stats to a really extreme degree to 
get him anywhere close to the the typical baseline that we talk about. So he's a no for me, and I'm I'm sorry, Viscal fans, and I enjoyed Viscal too. So that's that. All right. Question four. Uh, this is peripherally Dodgers related, I suppose. This is from Josh. He says, Assume similar to Muninori Kawasaki wanting to play with Ichiro, Otani's agent makes it known that the sole factor that will determine where he signs is Shohei Otani's desire to play on the same team as a particular player. Let's say it's you, Darvish, or let's not even say it's you, Darvish, but if that player is a free agent like Darvish, how much does that increase his value? Conversely, if Otani will sign with whichever team is currently employing his childhood idol, Albert Pujols, how much could the Angels extract in trade for Pujols, assuming they don't want Otani for themselves? So I guess the question really is, you know, how much surplus value do you get from Otani? And how much of that are you willing to give to another player who will get you Otani? Mike, do you have anything to say or should I just go from from right now? I mean, you did just write an article about the value of Albert Pujols. I think you're on the yes. hook to go first. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Albert Pujols' value is nothing. It's uh, it's zero dollars. He's due. Uh, what was it? 114 million dollars over the next four years. He is projected to be worth zero dollars. He's projected to be worth as much as these words that I'm saying right now. And I have put very little thought into these words. So there is no value here whatsoever. So I think that I don't think the teams would pay out the full Otani surplus value estimate guarantee whatever you want to say because there's there's just something it's not in writing you don't right. have that guarantee that otani would uh would say true to his word but it would be awfully compelling and so i i think that this could actually increase the the darvish contract by by nine figures i think that it could be something like a hundred million dollars that you could see a team overpay you darvish now you would have teams overbidding one another of course and the darvish's representation would have uh, great incentives to let other teams know like hey this is where the the bidding has gotten to because you would there is just so much value in getting six years of Shohei otani that if you had to give away half of that, a little more than half of that, by signing you Darvish as well, if you can fit it into the competitive balance sex, then you are very, very strongly incentivized to do so. So I think, I don't know what Darvish is projected to get. If you figure he's going to get, I don't know, six years, $150 million, something like that, you could see him get 250 or 275 if Otani made this sort of guarantee. And and meanwhile, with the, the Pujols contract, I think that you would have a team trade for Albert Pujols and just assume the contract giving up nothing. I guess you'd have to throw in some sort of live arm because otherwise it would just look like giving a person away, which you're not allowed to do. <laughs> But I think that Otani would cancel out the Pujols money because if you have Pujols, who's due 114 over the next four years, he's due 27, 28, 29, and 30. I think teams would be happy to give Shohei Otani 27, 28, 29, and 30 million dollars over the next four years, and then you have more years after that. So yeah, if uh, if Otani and Pujols are like BFFs, then someone's going to trade for. If someone trades for Albert Pujols, just know that's a clue. That's something's <laughs> going on there. Right. <laughs> feels like the uh, the answer would almost certainly be somebody trying to sign like you Darvish for life or like way past his playing career because that's the only way that you can do that without running into the competitive balance tax problems right you just tell you Darvish hey we're going to pay you 10 million dollars a year until you're 
45. Right. Well, even <laughs> like you dead. just you just give him the bear, the the Bobby Bonilla and it, you know for whatever amount of money that it takes and then it doesn't even impact you all that much down the road because what's the what's the value of 10 million dollars when the competitive balance tax is at 400 million dollars in 10 years mm. it's it's a pittance. Yeah. Pujols has a 10-year at a million per year personal services contract that begins right, once exactly. his contract expires. So same sort of thing. I'll ask this to, to both of you. How long do you think Pujols lasts with the Angels? I, I'm almost, I, I feel bad about asking it because it sounds like I'm the vulture circling around his career or something. I I don't want his career to end. I hope he bounces back and is great, but it's hard to see that happening at this point. And he is signed, as we know, for four more years at 27, then 28, then 29, then 30, then the 10-year $10 million personal services contract, which would be awkward, I suppose, if the Angels release him at some point and then also have his personal services contract tacked on after that. But what do you guys think? Because if he plays like he did this year, where he was essentially the least valuable player in Major League Baseball, except for the fact that he was clutch, which is not really a, a consistent pattern in his career. It's not like he's always been clutch. I think he had been just about even clutchness before this year or negative clutchness even. So let's say he has the exact same season he has this year, except that he is not clutch or Let's say he gets even worse. I mean, what do you guys think is the most likely time for him to be cut? And if you want to say that the most likely is that he serves out the whole contract, that is a valid answer too. I don't think he's going to serve out the contract, Mm -hmm. but I think that it will be a physical thing. It will be because he can't go. Mm -hmm. I think the Angels are just never going to be comfortable saying, yo, we're cutting you, goodbye. Mm -hmm. But Albert's so fragile and has such a hard time now that the injury is almost inevitable anyway. And like that's the thing that leads to retirement is it just hurts him too much to go because he's not going to want to sit around and be the pinch hit 25th guy on the bench. He's going to want to play every day. And once he can't do that, he's set for life. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's crazy for us to think about leaving that many millions of dollars on the table. But if he just, you know, something goes in his legs or his feet, which has always been the problem, even next year, you could see him finishing out the year. And at some point in the rehab going, you know what, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. I think that's yeah. the, it's that more than performance, because if they let him play every day, he'll probably keep doing it. But if they do that, he'll break. So I think that's the, the most likely trigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can uh, I can relate to this a little bit when well I left 114 million dollars on the table when I left SB Nation <laughs> they were really trying to keep me on I think I think the Angels are going to give him a full year and a month and then I think that uh, I think that they're going to be optimistic I think Pujols I read an article not too long ago that Pujols is already having like the uh, his first regular off season in like three or four years you know the usual article right. you read about an aging player who used to be good something something working out he's healthy this mm-hmm. time and I think that the Angels do believe that a little bit. I don't believe that Pools' skills have diminished quite to the level that it seemed like they did last season. I I can see a reason to believe that he could be a decent hitter again, and I think the Angels can see that again too. Mm -hmm. I think they will go in, and he will be a regular. I expect that he will stick as a semi-regular, a mostly regular. I don't think he's going to be a good player. I think that by the end of the season, maybe he's an average hitter, maybe he's a little worse than that, and then I think they go into 2019, and you think, well, you're going to have to do this again. 
and then, you know, about a month, month and a half into the season when Pools is just not hitting. He's not having fun anymore. I can't imagine he would be having fun anymore. He's probably not going to be so clutch anymore. And then at that point, I think that the the team and Pujols will find some way of facilitating a graceful exit where Pujols walks away and hangs him up, but doesn't sacrifice the entire remainder of his contract. Because mm-hmm. I think that that's an awful lot to leave up. Even if you figure he's set for life, well, maybe he wants to use that money for good. He's got his own foundation, you know, that's mm-hmm. a, it's a whole lot of money to put toward good causes. So I don't know exactly what that means will be, but I think that they will come to some sort of settlement and Pujols will no longer be playing for the Angels by the All-Star break of 2019. Yeah. Yeah. I think 2019 is the most likely year for this to end somehow. But I think, Mike, you make a good point that this will probably be made easier for the Angels in some way where it, it won't just be cruelly cutting him. It'll be he can't play and it's clear to himself and to everyone else that he can't play for health reasons. That's probably the most likely outcome here because if not for that, it's really difficult to cut him, not just because of the money that they're on the hook for, but just his stature in the game and the respect that players have for him and what he accomplished in the past. And it would obviously be seen as a a slight if you say you are worse we'd rather pay you not to play for us that it's uh, you know not the kind of thing that you want to say to Albert Pujols so I would imagine you're right they will go out of their way to try to avoid that situation but they might not have to so let's take one from Mike he says suppose a baseball fan from 1918 time traveled to today what would be the most mind-blowing aspect of modern baseball to him and I guess we can just focus on The game on the field more so than everything else that is happening in the world (laughs) and in the stands surrounding the baseball game. And And the the technology and the jumbotron. Right, and jets are flying overhead and people are parachuting into the stadium. And I mean, I guess they had airplanes that wouldn't be so shocking to someone from 1918. But still, let's, you know, the, the flyovers, let's say not that but just the stuff that's happening on the field. I mean, the answer is probably just how big and fast and strong all of these guys are all at the same time, right? Yeah. Like the the athletic standards have changed so much. They're throwing so hard. They're huge. I mean, it seems like the average baseball player is like six foot three or something at this point, right? Mm -hmm. Like these guys are just gigantic. I mean, Mike does say the most mind-blowing aspect of modern baseball. I guess that could include the economics of modern baseball. So it could be just the fact that players are multi-multi-millionaires. That would probably be pretty mind-blowing to a a baseball player from 1918. It could be, I guess this could encompass the data collection, the fact that everything is measured precisely and swings tracked and pitches tracked and all of that. That would probably be pretty mind-blowing too. I guess that stuff would be more mind-blowing than any stylistic difference, but, you know, certainly the changeover from, I mean, this is someone who is from essentially the beginning of Babe Ruth's career as a as a hitter, and, you know, this guy would be time-traveling to a time when no one minds strikeouts and everyone's trying to hit home runs and everyone is hitting home runs, and that would clearly be different i think and he would be exposed to pitches that he has never seen before that would be pretty mind-blowing although i guess he'd be happy that he didn't have to deal with spitballs anymore so that's something oh wait no i got it it's how long the freaking game takes <laughs> this is a fan this is a fan from a hundred years ago who's i'm looking at baseball reference and they're actually conveniently missing the average length of a game in 1918 but the years around it it's like an hour 50 yeah. 
Now we're 50 yeah. for the average game in 1918. And then you fast forward, he's going to time travel and be like, wow, I wonder how they've streamlined baseball in the year since. They haven't. They haven't done that at all. It's a lot worse. <laughs> it's so much less fun than it probably was in 1918. So he would, uh, he would be in the stands and then he would get to the two hour mark and then he'd look at his whatever version of a wristwatch they had in 1918. It was probably a wristwatch. And then he would look at it and think, that's funny. The game seems to be in the fourth <laughs> inning. And then he would go home or maybe time travel back, depending yeah. on how much he weighs the duration of baseball games against the other perks of living in the 21st yeah. century. On the plus side, they have lights now so they can keep playing at night and play at night at all. So that's that's new. That's exciting. Yeah. But maybe the 20 second pitch clock will fix that. Yeah, right. Maybe so. Or, you know, we haven't even mentioned the fact that the game is integrated, that players are coming from all over the world. That would certainly be something that would surprise a baseball fan from 1918. So there's no shortage of, of options here. And yeah, most of the most mind-blowing stuff has to do probably with all the things surrounding the game and the player pool and the money and the stats and all of that. More so than the game itself, which has changed, obviously, but is still recognizably the same game. All right. Gary has another Hall of Fame question. Excellent. What are the odds that Joey Votto missed out on making the Hall of Fame by two MVP votes last week? Not to mention not winning the Silver Slugger Award somehow. Low. <laughs> yeah. I too like to think that they're low, <laughs> though I, I did forget that Joey Votto had already won an MVP award and got schooled in a fan graphs comment section where I was like, you know, some idiot in 10 years, 15 years is going to be like, Joey Votto can't be in the Hall of Fame. He's never won an MVP award. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, we were discussing whether it's like, what's what's that word for like the whole the thing, the Bernstein Bears effect where everyone thinks that like something is completely untrue is hurt. The Mandela effect. You're right, yes. We just Mandela affected <laughs> away the, uh, the 2010 MVP award. But, you know, some, some like it's it's less likely from from two to one but i think that in 15 years hopefully we won't even care that much about those it's the only thing yeah. that makes me want to care about yeah. awards right now though is some idiot saying oh look i never never the best player in the league how can right. he be a hall of famer yeah i mean jeff bagwell won only one mvp that was in a strike shortened 1994 season craig biggio never won the mvp at all his highest finish was fourth place in 1997 so I think that if you were if you were thinking about voting for Joey Votto, I think that you are already focusing on the other numbers. Mm -hmm. You are a more forward-thinking voter than uh, than otherwise, which is not to say that uh, the MVP wouldn't have helped. But I don't think that I don't think a second MVP is really going to mean anything mm -hmm. here. Yeah, and every Joey Votto voter will be forward-thinking because this will be in the future, and it will be what twelve years from now or more. I don't know. So. Well, what if we get time-traveling voters? Well, that could change things a little bit. <laughs> the 1918 fan voting for Joey Votto. I don't know if he's going to appreciate his talents. But yeah, I think by the time, I mean, that's the one risk. If you can say that you don't care about regular season awards, and I totally understand that, but they can sometimes affect the perception of a player. And Joe Sheehan was making the point recently that the fact that Max Scherzer now has three Cy Young awards, that puts him on a very short list of pitchers who have won three Cy Young awards. And you know, maybe he wouldn't have won either of those awards if Clayton Kershaw hadn't hurt his back when he did these last couple seasons. And, you know, maybe 
Someone like Scherzer now seems more impressive than someone like Mike Messina because he has the hardware, even though Messina was the superior pitcher or certainly had the superior career to this point, at least. And so it can affect how a player is regarded and whether he gets into the hall. But I have to think that, yeah, by the time Joey Votto is eligible, we won't be voting or at least Joey Votto potential voters won't be voting based on whether he won one MVP award or two MVP awards or or whatever it is. And, you know, he barely lost out as well. So I'm going to say also very low odds that that will make the difference. Let's hope. All right, let's see. Maybe we can do another one, finish with one more here. All right, well, it's been a quite a while since we took a, a trout question, so I guess we can take this one. This is actually from late September, and this is Robert asking, I seem to remember after Mike Trout's injury, there was a discussion on the podcast about his baseball reference page and whether it would feel incomplete or some other negative feeling like that if he does qualify for the batting title, which of course he did, and get some black ink in OBP and slugging and OPS and so on. Would you feel the same way? So when we look at Mike Trout's baseball reference page now, yes, he did. Do we feel anything different about him? Do we feel that the season was somehow unsatisfying? Is any of the shine off of Mike Trout now because he finally did not lead the league in, in war and match the stats he put up in previous seasons? I think for me, the only real letdown, aside from him being hurt in the first place, because that's rough on me as a writer, I want to write about him and only him, hot tip. But I think the real letdown for me was that when the Angels were, by some miracle, sort of alive in the the last month or so of the season, that Trout didn't do more to kind of help the team. Now, granted, apparently he finished the month with an 890 OPS. I have no recollection of that, but I remember monitoring like him and while the Angels... <laughs> I know! It was his... His split OPS, I don't want to go through the TOPS plus explanation on this podcast again, but for that month, it was 67. He was like two-thirds of his normal self with an 8-9. Anyway, so Mike Trout is really good. But when the Angels were close to the race and they were vying for the wild card spot, Trout was in, he was walking a bunch, but he wasn't contributing hits or home runs. And while I don't want to blame Trout or anything, it was just some poor timing. His season was great. That was the only thing that really disappointed me, I think. Otherwise, he's still the best player in baseball. I don't think that that's changed in any meaningful sense but i think there was an opportunity there for him to emerge as sort of a strong league mvp candidate i think it would have been a strong narrative for him because even though he missed time he would have helped push this like really mediocre team into the playoffs but it just didn't come together which was a bit of a letdown yeah for me i i think it's it's not disappointing when you look at his baseball reference page i mean he led the league in on base percentage and slugging and intentional walks oddly enough and also led the majors in ops and ops plus so if anything i think the fact that he really improved his rate stats kind of makes up for the shortfall in the playing time and the total value stats i mean it's always going to feel like a missed opportunity to me like unless he comes back say next year and has his best season ever or any year after this, then I will wonder what might have been just because he was off to and and had the best season of his career just on a by-plate appearance basis. So, of course, I'll always wonder, well, what would happen if he had gotten his usual 700-ish plate appearances instead of 507? What would his war have been? And, of course, he would have extended all his amazing records about, you know, best start to a career and 
most seasons leading and this and that and all of that. So I feel that loss a little bit just because this had the potential to be at least his best full offensive season, maybe his best overall season. And I want Trout to be as superlative as he possibly can be. So it's not a reflection on him as much as it is a reflection of me and my unrealistic expectations and hopes for for Trout, essentially. So I want him to achieve anything he possibly can. And so I will always be a little sad when I look at this line and realize that eh, maybe he could have just prorated this line over another almost 200 plate appearances and put up an even more phenomenal season. But certainly it's not a, a black mark, although there is a lot of black ink on this line. It really is. Sweet conclusion. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. That six, like, just when you look at the awards on Baseball Reference, Mike Trout, like, two, two, one, two, one, four. Yep. <laughs> like, that's the disappointing year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still incredible. Mm-hmm. Mike Trout just finished what? What was that? Fourth, fourth on the yes. MVP? And what did I say earlier? Biggio topped out at fourth <laughs> on the MVP. So you could say that, therefore, Mike Trout just had Craig Biggio's best season. <laughs> and it was Mike Trout's worst. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like last year's Kershaw or his career is like 1-2-1-1-5-3. One, 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 right. Like the, the two. Yeah, just like... That's that's your anomaly. The fifteen to one strikeout to walk ratio that was the the worst finish yes. of his career. You know, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. Trout is the same thing. Yeah, this is you know thing that you see in some other sports a little bit like awards fatigue like Michael Jordan didn't win as many MVPs as he probably should have because people just got tired of giving him the trophy every year I feel like Kershaw and Trout both get a little bit of that Mm -hmm. like I think last year somebody like Kershaw would have finished higher than fifth with that partial season if it was anybody but him but for him it was disappointing and same thing with Trout if it was somebody out of nowhere even if at 120 games if it was uh, someone who you know had their breakout year I don't think they would have you know been in top two but i bet they would have been a finalist like who was the other finalist it was ramirez yeah was the was the third finalist like you could easily see that line trumping that and getting into that conversation but because it's trout it feels like a letdown Mm -hmm. all right well we can wrap it up there mike it has been a pleasure not just having you on the podcast but also having you as a patreon supporter and an active participant in the facebook group and email and comment sections all over the baseball internet so thank you for being such a a constant presence well thank you you guys have uh provided me with a lot of uh drives to work that are uh worth it Mm -hmm. so i appreciate that very much is there anything you want to plug where people can find you or read you or just FedEx's competitive rates? <laughs> <laughs> I won't talk about that. God, it's going to be Christmas time. Don't even remind me what that's like. I'm just can I blank out and come back in January? I mean, I don't write anywhere or anything like that. I mean, I'm in our Facebook group and I post on fan graphs. And I tried today to delve through the archives of Baseball Prospectus to find an article that I remembered from 12 years ago about something. <laughs> that I wanted to link to someone on Twitter. And that's when I found that you really can't do that (laughs) in the archives of Baseball Prospectus. I could not find this article for the life of me. I spent 35 minutes on it and I eventually just gave up (laughs) and linked to something from 
2012 instead because <laughs> I could find that. Yeah. Google knew where that was. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, the Facebook group is a really great, uh, really great discussion. And I know when I when I started listening, I did not go in there and I sent you guys a lot of things that I probably could have just posted in the <laughs> Facebook group because I wasn't using it. But uh, there's a there's a really uh, there's a really great group in there, and they're a lot of fun to talk to, and they keep it interesting mm-hmm. uh, from the stat of the day countdown to yes. next year that we've been having to uh you know the point where somebody um or or one of us is like deep deep in their own homerism everyone else is like dude <laughs> right if it was the other way around you'd, you you you'd think that you you'd think that we were crazy yeah <laughs> but the conversations are generally great and uh the community has come together and done all kinds of great stuff from your microphone auction to <laughs> you know the way that they handled the uh, resident troll a while back so all yes. of those things uh, mm-hmm. i'm really glad to have found that group and uh if you're listening and not participating in it i recommend you check it out because there's a lot of people who are funnier than i am <laughs> all right well let's see how selfless that was i asked you to promote yourself and instead you promoted the facebook group so we appreciate it nice talking to you and thanks again Yeah, thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. You can be like Mike and support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support, other than Mike, include Ben Medeiros, David Lizabram, Nicholas Rapp, Terry Spencer, and Nathan Bodnar. Thanks to all of you. And you can also be like Mike and join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild. You can also rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I don't know if Mike's done those things, but I'm going to guess that he has. Thanks as always to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system. We are pre-recording a podcast for Friday, so you'll have something to listen to if you're traveling or digesting or trying to avoid your family after the Thanksgiving holiday, but we hope that you all do have a wonderful holiday, and we will talk to you later this week. I tell you, I'm going to have all the money, and I don't want no back talk, because if you don't like the way I'm doing, just pick up your things and walk. You gotta be crazy, baby. Oh, you must be out of your mind. It's